The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Down to Earth edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as ever, by Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, fresh off the boat from the country that with which I used to associate myself, Great Britain. <laughs> wow, that's a long... Oh, oh yes. No, oh, I just got back from London. Hi, everybody. And, and yeah... I'm never going back, not since that vote. Um, <laughs> it's nice there. Uh, meanwhile, Jordan has disappeared off to that random armpit of a city known as Paris for reasons mm-hmm. which only he can hazard a guess at, um, which means the great and exceptionally awesome news of the week is that Miriam Gottfried is here. Yay! Yay! Hi, guys. Hi. You you work at the Wall Street Journal. I do. I write for the Heard on the Street column. And you have a podcast. I do. My podcast is called Heard on the Street. That- so check it out. It comes out with a new episode every Thursday. Every Thursday. And you talk about? We talk about the financial news of the week where we, t- we give a little bit more wonky commentary about what's going on than this podcast does. Do you do wonky commentary about Deutsche Bank? Yes. Our our latest episode was about Deutsche Bank. And when we get to Deutsche Bank later on, I'll tell you why it's kind of funny because our podcast might already be out of date. <laughs> <laughs> Only one day later. We we come out on Saturdays, which means our podcast is better than Heard on the Street. Which comes wow, out. It, it's wow. two days better than Heard on the Street. <laughs> Having said that, I think our audience will probably be very interested in your podcast. Yes. And so, yeah, do listen to Heard on the Street. It's an excellent podcast. Go check out what they have to say about Deutsche Bank, but not before you listen to what we have to say about Deutsche Bank, because we have our own opinions. Um, we are also, because we're Slate Money, going to talk about missions to Mars, because it's awesome we get to go to Mars. But first, we are going to take a special advantage of the elevated presence <laughs> of Miriam Gottfried to talk about a whole brand new college rankings that has come out from the TLS and or the Wall Street Journal. That's right. My illustrious employer decided that there was a void and we needed more college rankings. There aren't enough college (laughs) rankings out there. So now here's a new college rankings for those of you who are thinking to yourself, I'm short a college ranking. I'm going to pipe in right here and right now and mention that a full chapter of my book is devoted to college rankings. Whoa. You're an expert in college rankings. I really, really am happy about this. This is huge So in a good way. So, okay. So the one thing everyone knows about college rankings is that number one – Okay, the two things that everyone knows about college rankings is that, number one, the only one that anyone cares about, at least in academia, is U.S. News and World Report. And number two, that the U.S. News and World Report rankings are shit. And completely flawed. And that's a real problem. And so I'm glad there's like a real competitor out there. So so without asking the Wall Street Journal reporter to plug her own thing too much. I have some criticisms. um, But but. Just, I'm going to quit. Before we come to you, Miriam, I'm going to ask Kathy, like, when you wrote your chapter, did you look at alternative rankings? Absolutely. That's what I ended the chapter with. Are they all shit? 
Well, I ended the chapter with saying, let's get some better and more varied rankings and uh, theoretically and conceivably, ideally to have us able to tailor our own rankings after asking, being asked a few questions about what we care about. But the, the biggest, the biggest complaint I have about the U.S. News and World Report's ranking um, is that they do not consider cost as a, as a, an, and that's guess so what? messed up. <laughs> and guess what? We have your rankings do, Miriam. Yeah, well, the good thing about our rankings, I think, is there is some ability to tailor them because you can you can rank by different factors, um, you know, including I think resources was one of the factors, outcomes like how much money do students make after they leave, or you know how many are employed, or how many can pay back their loans. All of these things are included in the rankings, so it is a little bit more tailorable, and you can kind of see how different schools, you know, you know, I think. You know, some public schools were mentioned in the article as ranking surprisingly high. Brigham Young got sixth place on one of the metrics, you know, and nobody would ever put it near the top of the U.S. News and World Report ranking. And, and that's a- because and that's because that was the bit which was done on the really innovative part of this, which is the student survey. You send out a survey to 100,000 students around the country and you say, are you challenged? Are you having fun? Are you meeting with your teachers? These kind of questions. And that then becomes part of the rankings. Yeah, I think they called it engagement or something engagement, like that. Engagement, yeah. yeah. But tell me, so what's your – explain why the world needed another college rankings and what you think of this one. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily think the world needed someone else to tell them that Stanford University is the best in the country. I mean, or and Massachusetts Institute of Technology is number two. But um, I do think, you know, I've done a lot of work with my own college and, you know, with recruiting people for the school. And I really do think that the out, that different outcomes matter to different people. Like – I don't think that to everyone, making the most money when you leave is the most important factor. I don't think that donating to your school, the most alumni who donate to their school, is necessarily an important factor for students. And as Kathy said, I think cost is a hugely important factor that's way more important than all of those things. And I would add, I would add that like the fact that, co- the fact that cost hasn't been uh, taken into consideration, the, the, my, my book, the whole point of the chapter is that that the college administrators in this arms race to be better ranked have actually ignored cost and allowed it to balloon because it literally doesn't punish them to do so. So now we have a rankings where they will get punished if they let tuition rise um, just because they want to get better in the rankings. The thing that I didn't like about the rankings is that I think it favors universities with a graduate school over universities that don't have one. Because 8% of it is based on research. It's based on research, which obviously would come from schools that have graduate programs. And none of that is going to go, I mean, not none, but very little of that ever gets to the undergraduate experience. I mean, I think the student-to-faculty ratio, which was also a factor and was weighted more heavily um, than the um, research, is much more important. But, but it's not that important if half of the faculty are off doing research and never teaching. That's right. And I think, you know, you saw that Williams College, which is which was the top ranked um, small liberal arts school, was way down at, you know, 20 something in the list. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that that is a reflection of the education that you would get there. Right. So if the reason why you're going to college is because you want the best possible liberal arts education, then what you do is you sort of filter the list by show me the liberal arts schools with a good education and you can find that. There are many, many different reasons to go to college, as as Kathy says, and and you can 
you know, cut, slice and dice these things in as many different ways as you like. There's no one uh, weighting which is going to be exactly how everyone should look at this question of where to go to college and how, how to think of college. But the thing which I have to say I liked the most about this ranking was the way in which it didn't use selectivity, that it didn't sort of say, you get all of the smartest students because you get to pick and choose the smartest students, therefore you're the best college. It was much more, it, it weighted diversity a little bit, not, but it did weight diversity and it, did, and it didn't give extra credit for just picking the people who were going to do the best. It was like, we understand that college is an educational institution which is meant to make people smarter and better and more valuable to society rather than just pick the people who are going to be the most valuable to society and take credit for their but then order. again, it's the same cast of characters at the top of the list as you might expect <laughs> to find. So exactly. that didn't necessarily change the outcome. All it, that it didn't much. necessarily change the top of the list. And I think one of the problems with these rankings in general is that whenever you look at a league table, and Miriam, you know this better than anyone working at Herden on the Street, um, is that the first thing anyone does when they look at a ranking is look at the top of the list. That's right. And they're like, what's the top 10? What's number one? Who's number one? Like, Has number one changed from last year? And the useful information is actually much lower down the list, I, yeah, I feel. Yeah, that's right. Listen, I, I don't think they're perfect either. If I may say my pet peeve now. Well, I don't think anyone thinks. Even the Wall Street Journal doesn't right. think they're perfect. <laughs> no, exactly. One of the most important points of this is that just the existence of different rankings is going to make people realize that it depends on what you care about, right? And so one of the things, I guess the, the biggest pet peeve I would have about this is is just like the um, the salary after you leave is yeah, just obviously that was twelve percent. It privileges you know engineering schools, yeah, and that's what we see. That's one of the reasons Williams isn't it's, isn't high, and, and it's, one, it's of one of the reasons why Caltech is Brown in there. Brown was the only Ivy League that was much further down because so many more Brown graduates go into nonprofits. I mean, everybody right. knows that just intuitively. So if you don't agree with the the way the world um, benefits and it rewards people for being STEM graduates, if you think like there are there are values to other kinds of majors, it's, then it's hard to know exactly how to look at this list. And I certainly think that has helped put Stanford at number one because Stanford graduates by dint of just by dint of graduating from Stanford and also by dint of the fact that computer science is the most popular course there um, tend to earn much more than graduates from other universities. One question I have for you, Kathy, as a proud Cal graduate, mm -hmm. um, is, and one of the things which I find more useful than looking at the rankings is to look at the ratings, that every school gets a rating out of 100. And so, it, you know, if one school is at number five and another school is at number 50, but they're within three points of each other on the ratings, mm -hmm. you're like, well, they're basically the same. Like, yeah. the ranking doesn't matter. Right. But when you can, like, compare the great rivalry between UC Berkeley and Stanford, you see that Stanford has 92 points and Berkeley has 78 points. And that's a big difference. So one of the things that they don't do in this ranking is like, go to the granular level. So like looking at CS majors, right, um, of Stanford versus UC Berkeley. And then if you did that, it would be much closer. 
I would assume. Um, and you can't do that yet. Maybe it'll mm-hmm. be in the future. But like once you once you decide to go to Berkeley, you're not just going to Berkeley and taking like the probability of you taking a major is the same as the probability of distribution of majors, right? You probably have an idea of what you're actually going to do at Berkeley. And then you'd have more information. Again, this is I'm excited. And that be- matters more for a big university like Berkeley. The other thing that I think they do, and I didn't see the actual source code of this stuff, but I think they actually do some kind of um, value added kind of measurement. So one of the points that they make in there's like 12 different Wall Street Journal articles about this, by the way, you should read them all. Um, They make the point that, you know, Harvard shouldn't be given too much credit for getting graduates that make good money because they, they, they take only very elite uh, students. So there's some kind of effort to understand whether the population that is actually the drawing that the, the the college drawing from is actually doing better than you would have expected otherwise. So there's this this idea that you know it's value added. It's the value added um, algorithm, which of course there's a whole other chapter of Kathy's book saying how how <laughs> crap value added algorithms are in the educational. I cannot wait to read Kathy's book. <laughs> well, uh, I have to say I'm going to defend this this order of value added because it's lots and lots of data. It's not just 24 kids in a classroom. I think there is if you have enough data, which mm-hmm. is I assume this is based on very good data, like lots of data. I think it data. said over. Yeah. I think it said a hundred thousand. Participants no, that's or, the survey. For the, the value added, that was that was the IPES survey uh, or something okay. like that. But basically, it's um, it, it's federal loan data, which is one of the reasons that there's a bunch of colleges which aren't in this ranking because they don't have enough students on federal right. loans. Um, but yeah, I think the the general consensus here seems to be that more is more. You know, if this was the rankings, if this had the same power as the U.S. News and World Report, then this would get gamed as well, and. Uh, and I think in general, what we should do is love any ranking which isn't gamed. You can basically one of the reasons that U.S. News and World Report is so bad is because that is the specific one that is being gamed. So let's think about what it would look like if this were gamed. What would what would college do to game this? Well, there there are simple relative. You know, there are things like how many students do you have who are the first in their family to go to college so you like hire a few you know admit a few more of those say or something like that or you tweak the um the value added algorithm somehow because all of these algorithms as you know can be tweaked i think it would be a little harder to game than the u.s news and world report i I actually i I hope so i thought about a little bit i think um gaming this model would actually not be as bad for America as, as <laughs> the way we were seeing admitting more diverse students, right? Students. Admitting yeah. more diverse students. Yeah, I mean there would be probably like like accentuating engineering courses instead of um, yeah. you know, English majors. That might not be great, um, but it would certainly be better than what we see now, where where colleges are trying to to like not admit students unless they promise to come and that's like provi- like making high school seniors lives hell because they basically have to act like they're they are salivating over every single college they're applying to it's stupid well college admissions are stupid they're going <laughs> to remain stupid you have one more tool if you're in that stupid world um go check it out apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So the one subject we really need to talk about this week is 
Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is one of the biggest banks in the world, te- definitely in the top five by assets. Depending, like the, one of the problems, but only by assets. <laughs> what, one of one of the problems uh, is that European banks measure their assets differently from American banks, so it's hard to actually compare easily apples to apples, like which bank is bigger. But they're huge. They have on the order of one point six trillion euros of assets, and that's insane amount of stuff. And so, and yet, for all the fact that they're mind-bogglingly enormous, they're also the most interconnected bank in the world. If you remember when Lehman went bust, and it wasn't too big to fail as, the, as so, so much as it was too interconnected to fail. Um, Lehman's nothing compared to Deutsche. Deutsche Bank has tentacles everywhere. It is connected to everyone. There's literally no financial institution on the planet which doesn't have Deutsche Bank counterparty risk. And so... Deutsche Bank is just this this huge behemoth of the financial industry, and what we look, what we see when we look at the stock market, which is a, not necessarily, let's be clear about this, the best way of judging anything, but the, <laughs> but it is definitely something which the world is looking at right now is the Deutsche Bank share price, and it says that this bank with one point six trillion euros of assets is worth fourteen billion dollars. So what's going on with it? I, I literally don't know. I was I've been in London. Tell me what's been going on with it. So, Deutsche Bank is experience. It's it's very complicated, but it's experiencing a few kind of like negative feedback loops. I guess it. So there's this looming threat of a regulatory fine from the U.S. And that precipitated the current craziness. Because, but it's only fourteen billion dollars. Well, yeah, but, but, but the, if you're the stock's only or the market value is only fourteen. Billion. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's so, a good point. And, and so, so, so the DOJ wants fourteen billion dollars from Deutsche Bank. Now, let's be absolutely clear about this: the amount that Deutsche Bank pays in a fine is not something which just magically gets removed from market capitalization. It's not like Deutsche Bank would in any way get wiped out if it paid for In particular, because people knew it was coming, so they probably priced it in to some extent. And also, Deutsche Bank is not going to pay $14 billion in, in this fine. Like, this is all part of a complex negotiation. But the fact is that this enormous fine for various mortgage things that happened in 2008, um, even if it gets cut down, w- is big enough to cut into Deutsche Bank's capital, which was relatively thin to begin with. Now, it's nowhere near as thin as, say, Lehman Brothers was, you know, in 2008. And even if you wound up getting $14 billion, it would still meet the regulatory minima, but it would be very close, and both regulators and the stock market want it to be much stronger than that. And the problem is that in order for Deutsche Bank to become stronger on the capital front, what does it need to do? It needs to raise more capital. And right now, its bond ratings have been cut, its capital is thin, its stock is weak. It has no way of raising capital without that capital being incredibly expensive. And it has no obvious way for its return on investment invested capital to be higher than the cost of capital. Can I, I can back up a little bit? Yeah. I mean, because here's the thing. I understand that there's like lots of ill wins for Deutsche Bank, and there have been for a while. This $14 billion fine by the SEC was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. But really, why aren't all banks in Europe going through what Deutsche Bank at least was going through before the SEC stepped in? Because I think they are to a, a much, much lesser degree. So the other big bank in 
um, Germany's Commerzbank. Bank. And to just put this in a little bit of perspective, the Deutsche Bank price to book ratio, which is one way of looking at how happy the stock market is about a bank is 0.21. You know, it's basically saying that Deutsche Bank is worth one fifth of the amount that it's actuarially worth. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, the Commerce Bank um, price to book ratio is 0.25. So it's not much <laughs> better. So that's actually very close. Um, you know, back before the crisis, most, you know, most banks were trading above book. Some banks were trading at two times book. Some banks were trading at three times book. So one of the Being reasons... Being a European bank is not a very good thing to be right so now. Because, because of the interest rates, I assume, yeah. because negative interest well, rates. Well, it's, it's not really because of interest rates. It's much more to do with the regulatory regime, the fact that they just are constantly being forced to raise more capital. And the more capital they have, the less return there is for share- – the more capital they have to hold, the less return there is for shareholders. And generally, the fact that banking is being forced to become a boring, low-profit utility, which is good for society but bad for bank shareholders. And that's kind of what we want. I actually learned about a new thing, which maybe is too wonky to bring to this podcast, but I'm going to risk. Hey, it's we're wonky. Operational Don't make me risk feel weighted assets. Operational risk weighted assets. And this is like something that, so all banks have risk weighted assets so that certain assets are, were, are basically called riskier than others because they are, the, like the chances of. Oh, or because regulators deem because them Because regulators to be. deem so, them So to be. because they, the regulators tend to be. European sovereigns, then the European sovereigns will say, well, if you hold European sovereign bonds, those have a zero risk rating, right. even That's though they're definition. not risk by free. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so then there, but operational risk weighted assets have more to do with your performance as a management. How have you run the bank in the past and how will that affect your future performance? So um, Deutsche Bank has the problem of having paid all of these fines in the past, which suggests that they'll have to pay more fines in the future, according to regulators, which means that they have to have more assets. Is that right? Or, or more, more capital. capital, rather. So, yeah. so anyway, the, the big question right now, the big question facing Deutsche Bank, and this is why everyone is talking about Deutsche Bank right now, and one of the reasons that the stock price is so low, is, is it going to raise more capital? And on the one hand, the answer is, has to what if you look at what the bond market is saying if you look at what the cds market is saying if you look at what the stock market is saying they're all saying the same thing very very loudly which is go out and raise more capital and the ceo of deutsche bank is this guy called john cryan and there is literally no one in the world who is better at raising capital than john cryan that's (laughs) what he has spent his entire career doing at various different banks for various different institutions if he felt that he needed to or wanted to, there is any number of people who he has very good relationships with, sovereign wealth funds around the world, that kind of thing. And he, he can, can raise the capital. He can phone them up and say, hey, um, I'm selling you you know, $5 billion of stock and they'll be okay. And then then it's just a question of how much they're paying for it. I mean, well, they're paying $5 billion for it, but, but the question is like, what's the share price? How many mm-hmm. shares do you get for mm-hmm. that 5 billion euros? Or they could issue bonds, right? No, that's not capital. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, so basically, if you want this to be 
tier one capital, right. which is right. the one mm-hmm. type of capital that everyone wants, it needs to be common stock. Anything other than common stock, if they try and do it with cocos or something obscure like that, <laughs> no one is going to be so the reason they are happy. They're they're hesitant is because they just don't want to give that much power to someone else. Well, it's also because they don't want to dilute their current shareholders. That's that why much. their current shareholders are upset because they think that dilution is imminent. If, if put it this way, if the Current market capitalization is $14 billion, and they raise another $14 billion in common stock, then basically, at, at the current price, then what that means is that your share of the company gets cut in half. But then the company itself might be much worth a lot more because it's more stable. Might. <laughs> uh, it's a, but I mean, it is a dynamic system. You can't really, you can't say the, the be- share price is at a 33-year low right now. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of dilution which is probably priced in. We just don't know how much. I think one thing that's also really hurting Deutsche Bank is people are getting afraid and that fear is sort of driving things and making it feel a little Lehman-like, even though, as you put it, it's really not. So that's exactly it in we have finance. These hedge funds, right, that are pulling their some money out of... Okay, so this, this we, we should address this because... There was a bunch of like very bad reporting about this, and there was some good reporting about this. There were some hedge funds who basically moved the cash in their derivatives accounts from Deutsche Bank to other banks. The cash in their derivatives account was not useful assets to Deutsche Bank in any way, shape, or form. This this isn't people pulling assets from Deutsche Bank in a real sense. It's a more symbolic move, which allows hedge funds to go to their LPs and say, yeah, we're doing something. Um, What's not being pulled is funding. And what's more, Deutsche Bank has access to essentially unlimited funding from the ECB and other sources. Right. It's not going to be allowed to fail. It was, not only is it not going to be allowed to fail, there is literally zero chance of it failing because it has more than enough in assets. As we said, we have, it has $1.6 trillion in assets. It has more than enough assets it can take to the ECB. It can get cash in return. It has all the liquidity it needs. It has all of the funding that it needs. It just doesn't have the capital. So the question is, why don't you just go out and raise the capital, even if it is expensive? And the answer is, you're going to love this one, the answer is, well, if we raise more capital, then that's just going to embolden the Department of Justice to ask yeah. for a bigger fine. They want to wait to find out what the actual fine's going to be before they raise the capital, right? So it's like a playing a game of chicken with it's the SEC. A, it's a sequencing thing. That the, the markets want Deutsche Bank to raise the capital now, but Deutsche Bank wants to wait until after the fine is determined because then – you know, all of that uncertainty goes away and they can also hold over the head of the DOJ this idea that they don't have much capital so they can't afford much of a Oh, my God. But I kind of think that makes sense. If I were Deutsche Bank, I would want to do that. I wouldn't want to just raise the capital now because I don't know what my actual needs are going to be yet. And yet somehow I suspect that Deutsche Bank is going to end up <laughs> raising capital right now. Yeah. The, the most expensive capital in the world is the capital you haven't raised yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it will continue to loom over them. Their, their stock will probably continue to be very volatile until they give investors more certainty about what the amount is. And, and, and you know, just to make it clear how big of a problem this is for Deutsche Bank, they announced with great fanfare that they were selling off a random life insurance arm called Abbey Life. Who knew that that was owned by Deutsche Bank? But anyway, apparently Abbey Life in the UK, which um, was owned, was owned by Deutsche Bank, and they announced they were raising $1.2 billion by selling it off. 
and the stock market just kind of linked and you know it and the stock continued to fall like when a billion dollars of sale just doesn't make the blindest bit of difference you know you need to do something big yeah <laughs> one it's like billion dollars is at the new unit <laughs> they're well, like it's oh, just one unit when you have a balance sheet which is 1600 billion dollars yeah. it, yeah. it really isn't that much crazy. that's right and i think there's no quick fix for deutsche bank to make it into you know a trimmed down bank you can't just start selling assets like to solve the problem i don't think that investors are going to be won over that way absolutely hello i'm Imi harper on the slow newscast from tortoise i tell the story of how a hong kong billionaire was silenced I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Kathy. Yeah, so take um, us to Mars. You know, I feel like we might give a little bit too much attention to Elon Musk and his fantasies, but the reason we do it is because, at least for me, it's the conversation I have at dinner every single night with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> my husband, actually, when I first got married to him, told me that if he was ever given the opportunity to go to Mars in a one way ship, he would take it. <laughs> Oh, my God. Would he spend $200,000 for the privilege? Absolutely. I mean, I'm telling you. And it, re- recently, I actually finally gave in. And I was like, husband, if you really want to go to Mars and never see me again, I'm going to let you do it. <laughs> the reason <laughs> I said you that. You wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. No. I wouldn't go, no. And that, I wouldn't go at all. That's no, the kind of conversation no we have at dinner every night. But my husband is like, 100%, I'm there. And I'm, I'm only agreeing to it because I know he'll never actually do it. So, Kathy, explain to me. I mean... To a couple things. I mean, Elon Musk has been very clear that he's not going to do it. He's like, there's a very high risk of death. Right, it's right. a one-way ticket. You've <laughs> got to be insane to do this. But he also knows that there's a very, very large number of people out there, like your husband, mm-hmm. who are willing and indeed eager to do this. Unbelievable. And so since you're married to one of yes, them, I can am. you explain the thinking? It's just It literally is a boyhood fantasy because he's a science fiction fan. And it's just this idea that you're floating in, in what's, real outer what's space. The, what's the second word of science fiction? Oh, yeah. No, but I mean, it's it's really, you know, and it's funny because I love Star Trek, but he, my husband is not a Star Trek fan. He's like this, you know, he considers it too soft. And he's only like really into the super hard science fiction. Anyway, long it's like, let's not psychologically understand my husband. There's no doing but, it. But let's, but let's go into the economics here because yeah. this is late money. Um, right. My, uh, my, my good friend Manu Sadia, who wrote, Treconomics, the economics of Star Trek, has gone at great length into the economics of Mars colonization. The idea here is that we're going to colonize Mars, and um, that's going to be a good thing, ultimately, economically. And that's just not true. It's too far away. It's just, it's always going to be a drain on society. There's no way that, there's no like unobtainium on Mars that we can mine and bring back to Earth and like make Earth richer. There's no comparative advantage on Mars that, there's nothing that Mars can do that we can't do better. Okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start defending this in a second. Okay. Um, but you're right. There are lots of obstacles. Number one, um, people have estimated how much it'll cost um, between 200 billion and 1.5 trillion. Like we'd have to close down Deutsche Bank and take all their assets. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, 
it, he he claims that he's going to have like between between like a million people on Mars in the next hundred years. That's Elon's idea, um, and that it only costs two hundred thousand dollars per person. But this, I mean, but what, it, what it would sounds, they do there? Oh, th- <laughs> he has no plan for that. To be clear, he's just talking basically about a transport system. He's he literally has so no plan for it. Would people be coming back too? Or they go it's and not, like hang it's out. It's mostly and cargo going there. He also is ignoring things like radiation poisoning, which mm. is a real problem according to some people, and the fact that the but, sand, but the, the soil that, there is toxic to but humans. I saw that like Ridley Scott movie. It's all doable with a bit of ingenuity, <laughs> and like you can just MacGyver that shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, another topic that we get into at, at dinner uh, regularly <laughs> is like who who should pay for this, right? So Elon yeah. Elon's idea is. Um, this is going to be a sort of a partnership between like NASA, in other words, the taxpayer, um, and him and other some other kind of um, visionaries in that area. Um, and you know, we've we've seen a lot of recent huge failures of with the SpaceX um, launches and stuff. Yeah, there was a big explosion just a few weeks ago. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And I have to tell you, when I saw that latest failure and it, like Facebook's satellite blew up and everything. Yeah. Um, I was like, I'm really glad that NASA isn't part of that because it would be such a like a shit show for like the NASA. And and this is part of what Elon Musk is is doing is he's quite deliberately taking a number of risks that NASA cannot for political yeah, reasons the, take. The exactly. cost of failure for him is actually very low <laughs> relative to a lot of other I mean I think, so I far think, investors have stuck with him. Yeah, and, and I, I think even uh, though you know all of his businesses are very precarious in terms of their financing, right. he's riding high. It's play money for him yeah. in, in some sense. Well, and also he he's his investors are self-selecting in a in a mm. kind in a way that they is they have an appetite for risk that the stock market mm. is very good at that most sensible people don't want to go to Mars and most sensible people don't want to invest in SpaceX but there's a few people who think that both of these are awesome ideas and he can ju- he can get those people to support and him. they're very rich people yeah um yeah so I'm going to go back to what you said um which is that there's no future for this I mean really what the qu- the question of like whether NASA will ever be part of this is a question of um, what are our priorities with money for taxpayers? Like, do we first fix, you know, hunger and the medical system and then only then think about, you know, space travel? Or is this something that we should be taking seriously now? I'm a believer in big science in general. Yeah. I think there's a bunch of scientific projects which are extremely expensive and can only be funded by taxpayers. And I think that there are serious problems with those big scientific projects being underfunded because taxpayers are too stingy and the classic example of that is the um the big nuclear fusion experiment going on in europe right now which is probably going to fail and it's probably going to fail not because nuclear fusion is impossible but because there was just too much skimping and too much of bureaucratic pudding going on for it to work the question is whether manned space exploration counts as big science and something that we should be investing in in a way you never know what this could lead to i mean we're destroying our own planet. Right. So, I mean, maybe we should be ahead of the game when it comes to exploring other planets. So, th- thank you. That That's kind of my point. Like, I agree, actually, that manned missions to Mars are pretty dumb. I mean, there's no particular reason for the taxpayer to pay for it. Um, but, like, the question of terraforming 
other planets is actually really, really interesting. And in spite of the fact that there is, get this, an outer space treaty of 1967, which kind of tells you, tells us we cannot do that because we can't like ruin potential life that's already existing on Mars. I think it'd be pretty fascinating to be like working on the science of like figuring out whether we could live on other planets since we're destroying our own. Yeah, but you don't need to sell $200,000 tickets to people like your husband in order to do that. <laughs> well, you don't Maybe have to. You do. Also, this is not just this is not just a question of like taxpayer money, you know, in the grand scheme of the national budget, it's never going to be that big. This is much more a question of the, you know, Kathy O'Neill family finances, really, because $200,000 is material. It's much more material to you than the NASA budget. You have budget. to sell a it's, lot of books for that. It's basically one kid's college. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. We could have had four Tie kids. Tie it back to the college. <laughs> so the answer is, if you want to go to Mars, maybe just, like, reduce the number of children you have by one. And then that will, that will do it. I'll start planning. <laughs> go to Mars, though. I really have no interest in space travel at all. I'm really scared of it. You know, believe it or not. Everything that I've read makes me scared of it. I think there's enough, and I I might be completely wrong about this. Please, listeners, weigh in. But I think there are enough people who want to do this that it's going to eventually happen. And I mean in the next hundred years. Like, I don't mean 4,000 years. I mean it's going to happen. And, you know, I I do think that $200,000 enormous though that sum is, is low enough and achievable enough that it's within the reach of a large proportion of the people who really, really want to do this. And if yeah, it's in their rich, they're going to do it. Or you can go to Mars, right? Well, I don't even <laughs> think it's going to be 200,000. It's going to be way more than that. But I still yeah. think yeah, there are even, a lot of people who want to do it. Even if it's half a million, yeah. people, yeah. Will, yeah. People, people will find will the money. That. Yeah. People have spent half a million on far less interesting things. I Seriously. Guess. <laughs> That's like, a great point. Like, you know, a third graduate degree. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so that's it for the main topics. But we do still have the numbers round, which is the best and most exciting bit of slate money. We get very rude emails when we miss out on numbers oh, round. Oh, yeah. Seriously. So, Miriam. My number is 500 million, and that is the amount in dollars. In dollars, that Barclays estimates estimates that Viacom and CBS would save by combining into one company again, and they broke apart in in 2006. Yep. Yeah. So just think, every year they've been wasting that much money. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I never believe these synergy numbers. Mergers are always sold on the strength of, like, billion-dollar I never believe them either, but in this case I do because 
think about it. The two CEOs of Viacom and CBS are two of the highest paid CEOs in the S&P 500. Well, if you s- just eliminate one of them, that's huge. <laughs> that is bad reason. Who is the CEO of Viacom these days? Uh, Tom Dooley, but only for another uh, month and a half. I suspect that Tom Dooley and whoever a successor might be are not going to be paid anywhere near as much as Philippe Le Mans I was going to say, we can we could solve that problem right now. That's, Just that, fire them. That might be the case, but I also think that CBS and Viacom are getting back together. So I mean, ultimately, it's up to Sherry Redstone. Yep. And, and that's she what will, she wants. She will do what she wants to do. I don't think there's much in the way of obvious synergies there, but people love to be big. Well, I think actually being big matters in media right now because – Otherwise, the value of Viacom just continues to dwindle. You need scale in order to get your crappy channels carried on TV <laughs> these days. And if you have a leading broadcaster like CBS saying you, you can't have CBS unless you take my crappy channels, then that's that's going to help Viacom. Yay, Synergy. That sounds so, yeah. good, so good for the world, too. <laughs> my, my number is... Which is the number of euros by which Jerome Caville's fine has been reduced. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So you might remember Jerome Caville. He was the rogue trader at Societe Generale who managed to not quite blow up SockGen, but he came pretty close. And... He was personally fined $4.9 billion, which made him, up until a few weeks ago, by far, according to some rankings, the poorest human being that the world has ever <laughs> seen, yeah. with a net worth of minus 4.9 billion yeah. euros, um, which, is, which just goes to show how net worth calculations can be really stupid. Um, but anyway, a French court just cut that $4.9 billion fine to a uh, 4.9 billion euro fine to 1 million euros, which is... Something he could actually pay. Something he could. Oh, yeah. He's probably afford. disappointed because <laughs> at least he could say, "There's no way that's ever going to happen." But now he's like, "Oh shoot!" Now I really have to pay. Um, my number is point nine, uh, or ninety percent. So there's this new personality test out there, and another chapter of my book is about how terrible some personality tests are, but mostly because of the way they're used. So there's this new personality test that finds um, kids. It seems to be ninety percent effective in finding kids that are likely to become addicted to drugs. Um, and here's the good news. They're using it to, like, help kids avoid getting addicted to drugs. And how do you do that? Um, they have these these kinds of counseling sessions, and, and they claim to be very effective. Um, so the four attributes they're looking for are sensation-seeking, impulsiveness, anxiety, sensitivity, and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's ways for to train these kids to, like, specifically address these impulses they have. And what I also like about this, it was written up in the New York Times, is that um, they don't. They don't tell the kids. Here's w- what we're doing, and you are about to get too addicted to drugs. It's kind of like this double blind thing, so the kids don't actually know why they're getting this advice. But it seems to help. Wow, excellent. Yeah, there you go. And and the idea is to stop them from doing drugs at all. And if you don't do drugs at all, then you don't get addicted. Or is the idea that even if they're, you know, typical teenagers and doing some drugs, they might be less likely to get addicted? I think it's the former. They seem to have like yeah. So, so these kids were selected because they have a propensity yes. for addiction, and and so but they they want to avoid having these kids come in contact with addictive. I think substances. I think it's probably a combination yeah. of the two. I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's good. Interesting. I'm hoping that that data, by the way, doesn't get leaked out into their 
their uh, public profiles. <laughs> <laughs> you have a propensity it could for still drugs be, according to the It survey. could still go wrong. It, it, yeah, there are so many ways it could go wrong, but for the time being, we can be an optimistic Slate yes. Money crew, which is a rare and special <laughs> feeling in this studio. Um, well, a little bit less rare now that the great Virulin Williams has taken over as producer. Thank you, Virulin, for producing... Um, thank you for listening. Search for us in the iTunes store. Subscribe to us there. Leave a review Leave a review of us there. Write to us. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. Um, thanks to Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producer, is over here. And check out all of the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, which I believe might even include Heard on the Street. I believe it does. Check we, out Heard on we the have, Street. We have tentacles even longer than Deutsche Bank. <laughs> uh, we we're, are going to go off and eat undersea creatures and then come back <laughs> to talk to you next week on Slate Money.